0: Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group, who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. Are we recording, Bill?
1: We are recording.
0: Hi, (laughs) y'all. How are you?
2: That's very official sounding. I like it.
0: I like it because it indicates, okay, now we're ready to go.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It seems to me if, if I was still seven years old and I still had a magic eight ball, if I asked the question I'm thinking and I turned it over, it would say future decidedly cloudy, which not only ties in with the whole idea that we're looking at a pretty bad, maybe hurricane season this, this year, but also that nobody nobody knows what's going to happen with students come fall. When it comes to going back to school, either on the east end or anywhere across this country, from pre-K all the way up through college. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And um, with us today, we have Bill Sutton. Hi, Bill.
1: Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor for the Express News Group.
3: And we have Catherine Manu with us. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Annette. I'm Catherine Manu. I am the co-publisher of the Express News Group. And we always have Joe Shaw, who's with us as well.
2: Joe Shaw, and I am executive editor. And let me tell you, it's 2020. I can guarantee you we're going to have a hurricane. I mean, there's just no way we're going to get through 2020. With don't, don't. Knock just, on, but, knock but on look, wood. Stop. Let's just embrace it. 2020 is going to throw everything they possibly can at us. So let's just be prepared. Well, if we survive 2020,
3: we're going to be okay. I don't know. I mean, the murder hornets never really came to fruition, (laughs) did they, you know? (laughs) That's true. I think they are
0: on the West Coast, although I saw some big, big things hanging out on the screen of
2: my porch. Yeah, the, the hurricane will sweep in the murder hornets, I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
0: And I am Annette Hinkle. I am the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. And, of course, we are talking about schools today and what will happen, and nobody truly knows. But it's interesting... Georgie, I think for you and I, particularly, it's very relevant because we're both at sort of the opposite ends of the schooling spectrum, whereas you have, um, have little ones um, who are still in elementary school. I have a big one who is starting her second year of college out of state this fall. So I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about what you're hearing as you cover the news regarding the school districts and what the big issues are and what we don't even know, which seems like it's considerable.
3: It's interesting that you used the word cloudy in that because that's exactly what Superintendent Jeff Nichols from the Sag Harbor School District used to describe what the future looks like for school in the fall right now. That district is actually meeting today, which is Thursday, July 9th, to have its first task force meeting to look at different scenarios for how school reopens. Basically, they're looking at everything, three scenarios. One is that miracle of miracles, COVID is all of a sudden just not an issue. We don't have to worry about social distancing and boom, we're just right back to where school was prior to March. I don't think many of us believe that that's actually going to happen, but that is a scenario to prepare for. The second scenario, which I think is probably the most likely scenario unless we see a big reemergence of the virus in New York, is kind of a mix of distance learning and classroom learning where you're able to socially distance students by perhaps having, you know, half a class come in for the morning and half a class come in for the afternoon or maybe staggering days. In an effort to be able to provide some in school instruction, but then also have to supplement that with distance learning. Then, of course, the third option is we see cases and hospitalizations and infection rates go through the roof, and we're just back to distance learning similar to the way it was this spring. Although I think most educators viewed this spring's distance learning as an emergency stopgap, like let's just maintain what we've you know, been teaching our kids, not really introduce too much new stuff and survive the beginning of this virus outbreak, I think they would see and would look for a little bit of a more robust distance learning program if it was going to be that by itself. But I don't think parents or educators want that to be the case. I know as a parent... <laughs> I really um, am hoping that, um, especially for my first grader who's going into first grade, um, there is some classroom instruction if it's possible.
2: I wonder if there's a fourth option here, Georgie, which is that the school year starts and the districts are going to have to be willing to, to switch up, that, that the situation is going to evolve, that it may start out better and then get worse, or it may start out worse and get better. And I would think that that would be even more complicated for any of the school districts to have to change gears in the middle of, you know, of doing instruction one way and then have to switch to doing it another way. I think that would be uh, a real challenge for each of the districts.
0: That's what a lot of the colleges are looking at doing. You know at this point i'm on this facebook page my daughter goes to school at the college of charleston in south carolina which has the added complication of being out of state and a state that is now seeing an incredible rise of COVID, even as we're going down so that's the whole big debate and a lot of -of out-of-state parents are panicking because we have to pay out-of-state fees is it worth it if first of all four out of five classes are in person and then in the last few weeks we've seen that evolve and it's gone the other way and now i think either three or four of my daughter's five classes are online. And it may be that after a month that you're at school, suddenly the school's like, okay, we're going all online. And wouldn't that be convenient after all of the checks have cleared for fall semester and everyone's paid for in-person instruction. So that's sort of a a, a more nefarious kind of look at it, especially when you're paying a huge out-of-state tuition. We're committed to sending our daughter down there because we have an apartment lease that we can't get out of. And she would just as soon be down there with her friends and up here. And I don't, I think we would kill each other if we stuck together another couple months. So it's kind of come to its time. We're actually sending her down there early just to get her going and on her way.
3: I think you will see um, co- out of state college um, admissions um, and attendance probably drop across the country because like you said, how much sense does it make to pay fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year in tuition, if your child is basically, or your older child is sitting on a computer doing all their classes. I mean, if I, if it was my child, I would say go to Suffolk Community. And I wonder if Suffolk Community for a semester. And I wonder if Suffolk Community will see an increase in students who are just going to take a semester off from their out of state college and attend community college for a fraction of the price um especially since we have a really good community college but one of the big complications is if your child receives a scholarship as mine
0: does you risk losing that scholarship which is not an insubstantial amount if your child does not go to the school in consecutive semesters so that's the other big thing if you're a parent who's getting a scholarship for your kid um you don't want to lose it at this point
1: you would also have to make sure that those credits are going to transfer over. A lot of the schools have, you know, agreements with the community colleges. I know SUNY does, and some of the state schools. But you could invest a year or a semester in community college and and take 12 credits or 16 credits, and then have your larger school or your out-of-state school say, "Just we're not we're not going to take those credits," and then you're just behind, and you and you've wasted that. That semester too. But I will say though, um, you know, I mean, I I completed a pre-COVID online master's program at Syracuse University a couple of years ago. And I would say that probably the education that I got in that master's program, even though it was all mostly 99% online, um, was comparable to to the master's program that they offered on campus, you, you know, there were some things missing, but you know, you know, and not for nothing, it's nice to have the, the, the new house school degree too, the master's degree. And some of what you're paying for is, is that when you're paying those larger tuitions for the out of state schools.
2: I, I actually have a question for Georgie um, as a parent. Um, I'm curious what you think about you're doing the best. And, and I, we've talked about this many times. I think it's remarkable that you're working full time while you're, trying to teach your kids and, and taking care of them, which is just amazing to me, I have to say. And, and I know you're not alone. There's a lot of parents who are out there and even parents who aren't working full-time have to try and deal with the education of their kids at home. I'm wondering whether you're concerned, how deeply concerned you are, that it's going to take time for kids to catch up, that, that this is, no matter what you're doing at home, everybody's falling behind a little bit in where they might be under normal circumstances. And I wonder how big a concern that is for you as a parent.
3: It's a huge concern for me. I'm worried about it on several levels. Personally, I worry about, like I said, my first grader more than my fifth grader. My daughter, Ella, is going into sixth grade. She's very intelligent and she's always been ahead of the curve in terms of her class. So I'm less worried about her because the slide she's experienced won't really impact her educationally. My first grader, Charlie, is it's a whole different situation. I mean, he's learning how to read and write and these like basic skills right now. And you know, I was able to get him through most of his class days. It was really challenging. It's not like with my daughter who could go into this office we set up in our house for her and meet with her teachers and get all of her work done and self-start and do it on her own. You know, with a kindergartner, you need to walk them through everything you know you so they need somebody sitting with them showing them if they're holding the pencil correctly and getting them through each you know workbook page um, and each lesson so distance learning requires the support of a parent now. I was able to make it work for the most part, <laughs> but I worry about a lot of families who maybe were essential workers in healthcare or in the service industry and had children at home. You know, I guarantee you there were a lot of kids my daughter's age, she's 11, who were caring for younger siblings during the spring while their parents were at work and were trying to manage them through their school day in addition to their own. Um, you know, and so that disparity of what, you know, some parents will be able to offer their children and what other parents will not be able to offer their children in terms of support is something I'm really, really worried about, um, in terms of, you know, how these kids are going to thrive or not thrive, um, in this new education model. And that will also be a disparity that we see district to district as these districts begin planning, they're all coming up with these individual plans. We live in a region with frankly, way too many school districts. Um, So you've got super small elementary schools, um, 2K through, 12 schools, two schools that have an elementary and a middle and high school. You've got districts that have the support of a commercial district that's vibrant um, and that gives them a huge tax base. So they've been able to collect reserves for an emergency moment like this. And then you have school districts that don't have that benefit.
2: So it's interesting, the, frag- the fragmentation leads to an inequality in the kinds of education that that kids are getting because of that.
1: I mean, I mean, that could be an advantage to some of the smaller districts that would be able to perhaps come back to school full-time and bring kids in because they've got the room to do that where you don't have 30 kids in a classroom. You don't have to switch days off or, you know, or, or try to find different classrooms, you know, to split the classes in half or, or whatever. If you've got a, a school like Sagaponic, there's no reason why they can't bring everybody back. Right.
3: I mean, theoretically, sure. But, you know, but then but then again, it's like, how fair is that when you're looking at all these districts, because you look at a district, we are in the spring school district. I love the spring school district. Ospreys forever, man. Um, And they were great through COVID in terms of communication. Um, But, you know, we're in the middle of an expansion project because we we were already out of classroom space. Like our classrooms were already overcrowded. Um, we're also a school district that doesn't have a commercial district to support it. So the taxpayers in Springs have a higher tax bill as a result than, say, East Hampton that has a downtown commercial district. So, you know, I just think, you know, it does kind of highlight an inequality that's always existed between the school districts when you're in like this crazy emergency moment that's going to be very expensive to plan for.
2: I also wonder if we should discuss the fact that the conversation about when and how to open schools, there's an economic element to that. There's a quality of life element to that, 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 you know, we've heard the president pushing to open schools. And I think there's good reason for that. It, there, there are economic pressures and, and for every parent who's got kids in school not having those kids in school is is another challenge that they have to overcome at a time when we have so many challenges to get all that but uh that has to be balanced out with the safety of of the kids and and the teachers that's a calculation that has a lot of play in it and and i think it's going to be fascinating to see how widely disparate the different districts locally fall on that. There's a continuum there of saying there is some risk, but we have to take some risk because there are economic benefits and and other things to to opening schools.
1: Granted, but at the same time, it it does support the whole one size doesn't fit all argument and, and might support the idea of each district coming up with their own individual plan to be able to best deal with how they're going to move forward.
3: I mean, that seems like it's the, it's the reasonable way. I mean, New York has already announced, which is the largest school district, their reopening plan, um, although Cuomo has said, you don't really get to do that, <laughs> um, but they have announced what they would like to do regardless, and it is kind of that second option that we were talking about earlier, a mix of in-classroom instruction and distance learning. Um, You know, but again, what Joe was talking about, that balance that's so hard to figure out as a parent, Um, you know, I can't imagine what school district leaders are going through where you, you need to prioritize the health and safety of your children and your staff and your faculty, but then you also have parents that need to get back to work and children that may be home alone, so... So do we want to talk a little bit about the jurisdictions and who gets to make the call about when a school opens and
0: how? Is it truly a local decision? Is it a county decision? Is it a state decision or is it a federal decision? Because if you listen to Donald Trump, you think that he has all the power to open schools, which doesn't seem to be true in what I, from what I'm hearing.
2: Just to address that, I, the, the federal funding of schools is like 10%. And he doesn't control he said he'll stop funding, and that's funding that flows through congress so um but obviously, you know he's got a bully pulpit, and I think he's using it, so he's come down but i I think that there's a diminished effect i think I think the federal government has very little to say about that
1: and and if you listen to cuomo i mean who who certainly objected to, to the president's um, tweet, but he's saying it's gonna be a state decision. And I get the, I get the impression that what, what it's gonna be is it's going to be decided by region, just like the reopening um, phases were, phase one, two, three, four. So Long Island region may be able to do A, while New York City is, is you know stuck, or upstate regions, Rochester and, and Buffalo and Syracuse, be able to go back fully so i i think it'll be broken down by those same regions but i'm just guessing there
2: what's terrific is that i asked lars clemenson who is the superintendent at the hampton bay schools uh, go Bayman, if you're going to say go Osprey. Go Bayman. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support my backyard too. Um, and Lars has agreed to join us. Um, and maybe maybe you can address some of that, Lars. We were talking about the, the balance between uh, keeping kids and teachers and administrators safe, but also there's an economic and a, and a quality of life aspect to getting schools reopened again. And finding that balance is going to be a real challenge for every every district
4: yeah i mean i'm glad you hi everyone um i'm glad you use the word balance uh because as i watch um press conferences at every level of government i believe we're being presented a false choice that it is uh one or the other and um and to do one or the other means we're failing in some way Um, there's a tremendous amount of concern and consideration um that's underway right now and I think this process deserves the time and space to make, to say these things out loud uh, without running to their corner and saying, don't say that, just open. And uh, we, we can't approach the work like that. I watched at the national level, at the state level in the last couple of days, um, there doesn't seem to be much room right now for us to have safe conversations to say, okay, if we can't open, here's what we need to do to do it the work better than we did it in the last quarter of the, of the last school year. Uh, we survived the last quarter of the last school year, but if we were to enter the school year in September in a remote setting, we have to make a number of changes as an industry to, to do it right. Very concerned about a community like Hampton Bays uh, that is largely working class that is 60% free and reduced lunch. As, as I came on, Catherine, I heard you talking about the economic piece and what families can do to take care of their, or the need they have to take care of their kids. I'm not a childcare service, but I am a childcare service. You know, <laughs> quite, quite frankly, in order for the economy to exist and thrive, I have to take care of the, the community's kids for a period of the day. Um, I hope there's no one more than the, the American educator who wants to go back into the classroom. We we chose the profession, right? We want to be with kids. Uh, we're planning to be with kids. But I think as we have to f- pay attention to the science that tells us whether or not it's safe to do so. And if it is, how do we do it?
0: What are some of the initiatives maybe you're thinking about doing if you do have to go to an online model, or at least a partly online model. You know, how do you make online education more engaging for students who are working at home? And is it different than just
3: showing the teacher in front of the classroom, but on a camera? I'd love to add like a, a side to that too, cause you're in Hampton Bays and you've got like a K through 12 experience. Um, how do you also plan within that for the needs of the different grades? I was. Talking to everybody a little earlier. I have a child going into first grade and child going into fifth grade My fifth grader was like able to go off and running and it was really not a problem for her my kindergartner (laughs) You know really there wasn't like a distance learning model that Really applied to him successfully because you need somebody sitting with you going through everything. So I just I think that's an interesting conversation
4: yeah uh, so so, even in the classroom, when the teacher stands in the front of the room, that's not great education, right? It's, we call it the sage on the stage. You're not the sage on the stage. You've got to be out among the kids. A classroom that is noisy, that is dirty, that is moving around is the best type of education. Otherwise, what do you see in the, you know, there's there's a need for direct instruction and lecturing in the front of the room, uh, but that's, you know, that's only a component of the work. So, you're right, Annette, that We can't just have me sitting here for 40 minutes on a Zoom teaching you algebra. Um, So using the technology that's available, so we've all become experts at Zoom, and we can use breakout rooms, we can break our, our classes into different logins to get different types of work done. You can share screens, you can ask the kids to produce. Using that technology to its fullest potential, I think, is key project-based learning, you know, which was really the thrust of the Common Core to get into another third rail of public education, was that kids can access information any way and immediately construct things and solve problems. And so then potentially uh, you can take a Zoom meeting and, and break a group out and they can work on a problem, and that that's interdisciplinary perhaps. But at the kindergarten level, you're right. I have a four-year-old. The number of times that I was worried he was going to run through my Zoom meeting without clothes on was distracting enough <laughs> to, to the work we're trying to do. So That
3: almost just happened right now. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a podcast,
0: so we don't know. I, I have a 19-year-old, and it could possibly happen here as well. So,
2: you know, Lars... I have such sympathy for you as an educator and all the educators, because pretend for a second it's 2019 and I come to all the school districts and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change our entire education system to a distance learning model. How long do you think it would take for us to plan to make that switch? We probably need, what, a decade to, to really make that? And you guys are, are changing the tires while the car's rolling down the road. I find that remarkable that it's been as successful as it's been under those circumstances. It must, it must just be mind boggling to try and design a program while you're running a program.
4: And a testament to the faculty. And I, and I know I speak for my colleagues on the East End. We're a very tight group that work together and try to row in the same direction. Um, on Monday, March 16th, was the last time I met with all of my faculty members in person. And by the end of the week, we exponentially increased the number of Google classrooms that we had, so we we were teaching and learning at the same time. Uh, a decade, absolutely, colleges did online learning ten years ago, and it's still a system that you know gives you fatigue and frustration. And and um, but public education, you know, I, I can look in the mirror and say where we need to be stronger. Public education um, evolves slowly, so uh, to say this was a kick in the pants is an understatement but it it moved things along potentially in good directions faster than we would have ever done and rather than saying guys this is a good idea let's try it or let's move in this direction we got thrown down the down the road on this one um and in my hampton bays community we tried to to message very consistently and clearly to our families listen, this is like Goldilocks. Some days you're going to feel like this bed is too hard. And some days you're going to feel like this bed is too soft. And we are we are a human agency. We're just going to keep, to use Governor Cuomo, keep turning the valves until we get it right. Just like we do in the classroom, right? So we're just doing it remotely at a very anxious and frustrated time. So the more we kept saying that, I believe it brought the fever pitch down in the community to say, okay, we're, we're doing this. And, and I would add that however we rejoin our school community in September, the, the one thing I have said every single day and have written on my desk and on my board is that we will never say that children are behind. No child will can ever hear that because what are they behind? The textbook chapter, the arbitrary scope and sequence that we have set up in New York state education. They didn't do anything wrong. Behind implies a deficit model. We will take our kids wherever we get them and move them on. And th- we can't rest this on the shoulders of, of our kids to say, well, you should have learned this last year, but I'll go back and do it because that just is an unnecessary That's unnecessary noise that our kids need to hear. They've been thrown enough already.
1: The changes that you're making now to get through the crisis, Lars, do you envision that it's going to produce positive permanent changes going forward? Or do you envision in a year or two going back to a model of where we were in february
4: well i'll tell you uh, for those of you who know dana was with me on uh the 22nd of june i'll tell you the thing that is never going to stop happening I was the over the bridge parade for our seniors <laughs> the most celebrated graduating class in america was the class of 2020 and there's some good things came out of that but instructionally i think we're going to see some changes can you imagine a snow day Anymore?
3: you know what? That's so interesting you bring that up because we were talking to my daughter about that. And I said, honey, I think like the snow day is forever over. And she was like, no. <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right. Can you imagine that? You can go home and you can, you can engage. Um, you can take a field trip with your class and have a distance learning. You know, So we, we've been talking about putting a, a benchmark field trip just over the last few weeks into the 11th grade, and 11th grade was like the don't touch grade, they're regents, they're getting their SATs, you can't take them out of of school for a field trip. We can now, right? Because we can conduct some work remotely in the hotel at night if we go to DC or something like that. Um, Instructionally, I think we'll see more project-based longer term projects. So, so we called it the asynchronous model where work is posted almost like a college level approach. You know, maybe that's just at the secondary level, but instead of lesson, homework, lesson, homework, repeat 180 times, and that'd be your school year, it could evolve into something much more independently focused, and the teacher's role in the classroom becomes less of direct instruction and more of facilitator of learning and discovery, which is really the aspiration that we're looking to achieve even pre-COVID. This is just, again, kicking us in the pants to move fast down that road.
2: Lars, can you give us an idea of when you're going to know and how we're going to find out and how are these conversations going to happen at every school district? What's what's a timetable and what's what are parents' role going to be in having this conversation? Yeah.
4: So Kitty, Merrill, and I made a pact yesterday that whoever gets the guidance from New York State first has to share it with the other. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear, so, Good to hear. We, so we have it packed. Um, the governor indicates that on July 13th, so Monday, we're going to receive the guidance, which is essentially the guardrails for how we will prepare our plans. I can only imagine that the plan, that the, re- the requirement is going to be, what does it look like if you're in school? What does it look like if you're out of school? And what does it look like for a hybrid? So that's sort of the mental model we're we're working on right now. In about an hour, we are releasing a parent feedback survey for families to reflect the last three months. Some districts have done that already. I opted to wait until after Fourth of July. I wanted a fresh head. I didn't want parents scrambling at the end of the school year to fill out this survey, maybe when they were tired and really having just been in the weeds of this. Sit back now. You have a minute. Reflect on what worked and what didn't, because we're going to need that information. Um, as we craft the plan or get ready for contingencies if we have to close again. So July 13th, we get the guidance, and then by the 31st, we have our plans needing to be submitted to the State Education Department. That next week, they'll be reviewed. I mean, there's a very ambitious timeline. New York State Education Department, big building, minimum amount of workers in there because of budget cuts. So approving 700 plans in a week might be tight, but as the governor said yesterday in his remarks, We can make these plans on July 31st and have them approved by August 7th, and then on September 7th, given the circumstances of COVID in New York State, they may be out the window and something else might be in place. So we plan to engage a committee of stakeholders, which... I know is not dissimilar to what my colleagues are doing. East Quag is a stakeholders meeting tonight. We'll have ours beginning next week. Ultimately I'm going to have to make some decisions with the Board of Education, but doing that by hearing what the concerns are, I have to work. So I need my kids to go to school. I take care of my elderly parent so I can't have my kids coming home even though they may not get sick themselves, they may carry something into the house. To concerns on the opposite ends of the spectrum, how does school adjust to that? So those are the things we're thinking of. Those are the types of feedback we're getting. We're gonna have to bake that in the cake for the July 31st plan.
2: You got just a couple of extra things to deal with then heading into this school year. No, no big deal, right? No
4: big deal, yeah. So the summer of Mars, as I like to proclaim it, where I'm gonna go to Pong Beach and I'm gonna relax. I haven't been to Pong Beach yet this summer, so it's okay, it's all right. (laughs) There's no better time to be in public education because the focus has been in the last four months, as challenging as it has been, it has shown a lot of bright lights on things that must be addressed. So inequity, you know, we served 99,000 meals from March 16th to June 30th. Most of those were delivered on school buses to families. So that's a breakfast and lunch every day, 99,000 meals. We made 25,000 phone calls to families but in that same time for wellness checks. So every Monday and Tuesday, our staff owned between 10 and 15 kids and would check in on them. Kids who are English language learners, the language acquisition of interest relies so heavily upon interaction and using your language. We expect some setbacks there kids with disabilities, speech, motor skill issues, who they see PT and OT, you know, we've shined a, a light. There are a number of big gaps that we have to fill when we're back together. So if you're a problem solver, there's no better time to be doing this work.
2: I think your input here has been invaluable. Thanks, Lars. We appreciate you taking time because we know we know what, this is not a nor- normal summer in any regard. You're probably busy every summer, but uh, I, your time is valuable right now. Thanks for taking a couple of minutes and talking to us.
4: Appreciate it. You could say I'm in the high school music room, which is one of the areas where we're going to think, how do I put 100 kids all blowing hot air into <laughs> things? Have fun, <laughs> Lars. Everybody, be well.
0: And let's just hope we don't get a hurricane. Can I just say that now?
1: Oh, geez.
0: It is 2020. Anything is possible. Bring
2: it on. We can survive. I believe. I believe firmly now that we can survive anything.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude, flute music, is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.